Okay, Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been working our way through this sermon now for several weeks. What we've seen, just to ground ourselves here in the context, what we've seen is that Jesus began this sermon by drawing a line of distinction, by drawing a line of separation between the world, those who follow and are really entrapped by and bondage by Satan, his way of thinking, his system, and drawing a line of distinction between the world and the Christian, between the world and the Christ follower. And he outlined for us the, the character of the, the true believer, those who have put their faith in Christ, trusted in Christ, received salvation. That when we are transferred, as the Bible says, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, there's a, a change that takes place on the inside. That we are born again, the Bible says, by the Spirit of God. Whereas before we were dead in our sins, in our trespasses, spiritually dead, that through faith in Christ, God has made us alive in Christ. That just as Jesus died and rose again, so we too have received new life through faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. And the question then is, now having been born again, not by our own works, but, but by the work of Christ in our lives, what does it look like to be changed from the inside out? And so he began with these blessings that he pronounces upon the, those who have been born again and the character traits of those who follow him. Some of those you'll recall are, are being poor in spirit. That's recognizing our spiritual need. Mourning, those who mourn, that's those who mourn because of their sin. The meek, that's those who are, are strong but have it under control and, and they don't use their strength to oppress others but to lift others up. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, justice, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and even those who are persecuted for their faith. In Christ, he pronounces a blessing on those and, and on all of those, we see there's a, a bright line of distinction between the Christ follower and those who do not follow Christ. He went on to talk about the relationship between those who follow Christ and those who do not. That we who follow Christ are to be salt and to be light in the world. Salt as a preservative, light as something that illuminates that the Christ follower is to be in the world, but not to be of the world. That we are to be shining forth with the truth of the gospel as we follow Christ. That we are not to be salt that isn't salt, that is, we are not to be salt that isn't salty and light that doesn't shine, but we are to be salty and we are to be shining everywhere that God has us out in the world. Then he went on to, to talk about now our relationship between the law of God and the Christian. And we spent four weeks looking at the text where Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Meaning that the law of God becomes a pathway 
for sanctification for the believer as we live to implement and to obey God's law as we again hunger and thirst for righteousness. A few weeks ago we looked at as Jesus began in verse 21 to deal with the heart of the believer. Last uh, week Pastor Mark talked about the, the difference between those who are of faith and those who are not from Psalm chapter 1. And that brings us here to uh, verse 27. We're looking at just a handful of verses this morning, 27 through 30. And I want, just want to warn you that this is a, a heavy text for us today. Jesus here is dealing with the, the deepest recesses of our hearts. And in a way, he exposes the, the, the heart attitudes and, and the thoughts that we have that may be hidden to everyone else, but are not hidden to God. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. These are the words of God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is that lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. Lord, your word is revelation. Your word, Lord, illuminates. Your word, Lord, shines on the way that we should go. Lord, in a world that is so full of, of darkness and so full of confusion your word shines forth with blazing clarity lord even shining into our hearts and exposing lord sin in the deepest recesses and and exposing and and showing us who we really are and who you really are lord i pray that as we spend time here in your word today that you would help us to be holy that you would help us to, to live a life of righteousness, that you would birth within our hearts that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, that you would help us to cling to your cross, the only hope that we have of salvation, that you would uh, eradicate from us any notion that we could, could somehow produce in ourselves our own righteousness. And that you would show us that the cross is our only hope. We thank you for your gift of revelation to us. I pray that you would continue to open our eyes and ears by the power of your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a heavy text. These are weighty words. You'll re you, I was going to say you'll recall, but probably you won't. But... You may recall that when I started the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of the year, 
that I mentioned that there were those within Christianity who would, who would tell us that the Sermon on the Mount is not for the Christian today. You may recall that. That the, the, there are those who teach that the Sermon on the Mount was part of the Old Covenant. That Jesus was speaking under the Old Covenant and, and now we're part of the New Covenant and that His words here have, have nothing to do with, with those who are part of the New Covenant. But of course, I've shown you that what Jesus is talking about here is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, he's already mentioned the kingdom of heaven five times in his sermon, speaking to us clearly that, that those who belong to his kingdom, those who belong to his family, that these are the words for us. But the reason why people try to find that loophole to say that this was part of the Old Covenant is because these words are so weighty. Because these words are so serious. Because His words truly leave no loopholes. No way of escape. No way that we could wiggle out of it, if you will. His words, especially here, are... Are, have so much clarity. They're so weighty. They're so binding. There's no way that I could even try to wiggle out of this. And so what do we do with this? How are we to approach a command like this that seems so impossible to keep? That's what I want to help us to do this morning. Is not just write it off as, oh, this doesn't apply to you, don't worry about it. But to help you that we might keep the words of Christ. So, verse 27, he's, let's walk through it together. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, Jesus uses this phrase six times here in this chapter. We saw it in verse 21 when he talked about anger and the sixth commandment murder. Here it is in verse 27 as he's talking about the commandment to not commit adultery. You'll notice it here in verse 31 when he talks about divorce. You'll notice it in verse 32 or verse 33 rather where he says again you have heard that it was said to those of old where he's talking about swearing falsely or, or bearing false witness, the commandment not to lie. You'll see it again in verse 38 and again here in verse 43. This phrase, you have heard that it was said. And I just want to remind you that there are those who would say that what Jesus is doing here is he's setting up a contrast between his teaching and the law of Moses, the old covenant law. There are those who would teach that, even within evangelicalism today, who would say that Jesus is in conflict with Moses, that he's contrasting his teaching with that of the Torah, with that of God's law given through Moses. That Moses taught one thing, but Jesus says, I'm here to teach another. And I just want to remind you that we must never let such a silly thought enter our minds. Because, and if you look at just in verse 17, Jesus specifically addressed this. And he said, do not think, don't let this thought into your mind that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
Again, this is the danger of just pulling Scripture out of context. Because if you just pull the Scripture out of the context, you can, you can insert your own context and make it say whatever you want. But when you read Scripture and teach Scripture and study Scripture in its context, as language is designed to be used and utilized, you can see that you could never say that Jesus is in conflict with Moses or the teaching of the Old Covenant. As he began this section by saying explicitly that he came to uphold the law and to fulfill the law. So then who is Jesus in conflict with? Because he's, he's contrasting his teaching over against somebody's. And I want to draw your attention again to verse 20. Where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Immediately before this section where Jesus is teaching on the Ten Commandments, teaching them as valid, teaching them as good, teaching them as binding, he sets his teaching up over against that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Who were the religious leaders in his day? Who were the teachers in Israel of his day? And so when he is contrasting his teaching, he's not contrasting his teaching with Moses, but rather the religious establishment of his day. I also want to point your attention to the fact that Jesus is not just some sort of laissez-faire, go along to get along, whatever goes, goes. Just you just whatever you want to do with your religion, you just have it your way. You know, religions like Burger King, you have it your way, whatever you want, you know. And in fact, Jesus is quite the opposite. He's, he's not this sort of guru who teaches in pithy sayings that nobody can understand, that there's meaningless platitudes that is so confusing and actually doesn't mean anything, but everybody thinks he's really deep and that everybody fills his words with their own meaning. That's not Jesus. Jesus isn't some, you know, 60s hippie guy going around tripping on LSD that just says, everything's great. All you need is love. Love is all you need. No, Jesus was not the fifth beetle. In fact, it's quite the opposite. There's such a sharpness to his words. It's not just this little cotton candy pie in the sky religion. It is so sharp. It cuts so deep. Look at these words. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, just listen to the authority that he speaks with. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Man, that is sharp. 
Man, that cuts. That, that, that leaves no... Well, I wonder what he's talking about. No, you know exactly what he's talking about. Here Jesus begins to address this issue of, of sexuality, of human sexuality. And I want to, before I, I can even talk about adultery, we have to talk about human sexuality. We have to understand the purpose for which God created sexuality. We first have to understand, before we can even understand ourselves, we have to understand who God is. You see, you, you will not understand you, you will not understand your life, you will not understand anything about anything unless first you understand who God is. God is the reference point. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, he is the creator of all things. The Bible opens, God's revelation opens with him creating everything, including humanity. So for you to understand you, for you to understand what it means to be human, for you to understand your life, you first have to understand that you are a created being. And that you were created by God. That you're not just some evolved goop. You're not just a bunch of random cells. That the universe isn't just this random place of chaos. That it was created by God with intentionality, with purpose, and with meaning. And so you were created. Every human being was created by God. The Bible says he formed and fashioned and shaped us in our mother's womb. That he is the author and the giver of life. And that humanity is not like the rest of creation. Listen, your, your great, great, great grandfather was not an ape. was not a fish. Your ancestors were always human. Tracing our ancestry all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. If you don't understand that, you're not going to understand anything about anything else. Because that, that is the, the beginning. That is the launching point. That is the starting point. And if you start with another reference point, if you start from another place, you're going to end up way off. So God created mankind in his image to show forth his glory. And mankind was blessed by God. And so therefore, human sexuality, as we look back at God's creational norms, human sexuality was created by God. This wasn't something that Adam and Eve like made up after the fall in their sinful state. 
No, what we see in Genesis 1 is that God, when He created humanity, in His image, He told them, be fruitful and multiply. There's only one way to do that. I know there's some, some guys in lab coats today trying to figure out other ways to do it with their science experiments. Listen, there is only one way to create human life, and that is for humanity to be fruitful and multiply. That's it. And hear this. God created that. That's God's idea. Sex is God's idea. It's not man's idea. God created human sexuality. He created it and then he blessed it. It says, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Sexuality is a blessing from God. A blessing from God. And God gave this blessing to humanity so that humanity would fill the earth with, its, with God's image bearers. Listen, humanity is not on the verge of overpopulating the earth. We're not on the verge of, of you know, running out of resources. We're not facing some existential crisis because the world is overpopulated. That's all propaganda from the culture of death that wants to destroy the image bearers of God. This, I, I can't get off on that. i got to stay focused on my message. Human sexuality created by God. God's desire is for the world, the earth, to be filled with his image bearers, bringing him glory as we live in fellowship and relationship with him, exercising dominion, expanding his kingdom, his rule and reign to the ends of the earth. That's God's purpose for humanity. And God blesses sexual union as he designed it to be utilized within the, the boundaries of a covenant marriage. God designed sex to bind a man and a woman for life in a covenant of marriage. We read that in Genesis chapter 2. That this sexual union creates a one flesh relationship. And that the reason why sexuality and sex is so powerful is because it unites husband and wife in a one flesh union. God blesses this. God calls it very good. And sexual expression in the confines of a faithful covenant marriage is good is holy, is God-glorifying, and it is God-blessed. Additionally, what we learn from Scripture is that the, the sexual act was designed by God to be one of self-surrender. Self-surrender. Paul talks about this in Corinthians chapter 7 where he says that the husband's body belongs to the wife and the wife's body belongs 
to her husband. That, that the intimacy of the, the marital union, the covenant of marriage, is to be one of self-surrender. That when we engage in sexual activity with our spouse, we are to be surrendering ourselves, even our own bodies, to our spouse. And in doing so, that requires the highest degree of trust in any kind of relationship. And God's creational design was that through this selfless act of love and surrender, that this is how children would be birthed into the world and then raised in those types of families. Types of families where the husband and the wife love and serve and surrender to one another. And in this, the world would be filled with God's image bearers. Now, if, you, if it sounds like I'm talking to you about another planet, it's because we live on another planet. Because sin has entered into our world. And with sin came brokenness. And sin has broken the sexual relationship. It has marred it. It introduced brokenness. It introduced perversion. It introduced competition. It introduced friction. It introduced uh, 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 conflict between husband and wife. And so in our culture today, sex is no longer regarded as a loving act of self-surrender, but rather a means of self-gratification. To the point where young people are taught today, even now in kindergarten, that you must explore your sexuality for you to be a fully actualized human being. And that you must, should, it's good for you to have sex with as many people as possible so that you might find the one who satisfies you. And again, our culture puts the self on the throne. It's not God that's on the throne, ruling and reigning. No, it's you who's on the throne. And everyone then must serve you. And so everyone is objectified in terms of not the fact that they're image bearers of God and we're called to love and serve humanity as Christ loved and served us. No, but in our culture, because I am the center, because I am on the throne through sin and rebellion against God, no, everyone is objectified in how they can serve me. And so people are taught today that you need to have sex with as many people as possible to find the one that satisfies you. I remember when, uh, I'm not going to tell that story. Listen, that's a lie. That's a lie. That, that's not the path. <laughs> Having sex with as many people as possible is not the pathway to sexual gratification. It's the pathway to death. It's the pathway to soul-crushing soul-destroying anxiety, fear, depression, sexually transmitted diseases. Listen, that is not the pathway to satisfaction. 
and science proves this out, statistics prove this out. But it's unfortunate that even within the church, we've adopted this view of sex in that we view it as something to gratify ourselves. Even within the confines of covenant marriage, oftentimes our spouses are objectified and we view them in terms of how they satisfy us. That's not God's way. That's not God's design. That's the world's thinking still infiltrating our thoughts. And it's at this point that we've laid a baseline for human sexuality that God created it good, but it's been distorted because of sin. That we can now begin to talk about adultery. Adultery. Adultery is the result of sin, it is a sin. It's one of the Ten Commandments, and it enters into the world because of brokenness in our world. Adultery can be defined as when someone who is in a covenant marriage, a married person, when they engage in sexual activity with someone who is not their spouse outside of the marriage covenant. Adultery is engaging in sexual activity with someone who is not your spouse. That is adultery. And God in his law calls adultery an abomination. An abomination means that something is exceptionally sinful, exceptionally wicked, exceptionally vile in God's eyes. And in God's law, there was only a handful of crimes that were punishable by death, a capital offense, adultery was one of those. Adultery in God's law was regarded as the most severe sexual sin because it obliterates a marriage and a family. You see, the covenant family is God's most sacred institution. And the marriage, the family, is the bedrock of all human civilization. You hear a lot talked about the nuclear family. It should be called the biblical family. It should just be called family, let's be honest. What is that? That is a wife and a husband, and if God blesses the union in that way to bring into the, the relationship children. It's, it's trying, our world is trying to redefine that today. That's not God's way. That's not God's standard. A, a family, a true family, a, a husband, a wife, if they are able to have children, children. This becomes the bedrock of civilization. And this is why we're seeing so much uh, chaos in our culture today because over the last 70 years, that institution has been undermined. Undermined. Through things like no-fault divorce, through things like abortion, through things like, uh, how much do I want to get into trouble today? 
I'll save it for next week. I'll be in lots of trouble next week. The covenant family is God's most sacred institution. It's the bedrock of civilization. Where that is undermined, the civilization will collapse. And adultery annihilates a family. Because there's no more trust. There's no more trust. That that trust, that sacred union, that that self-sacrificing surrender to one another, the vows that were made before God have been broken. And Jesus here in our text, he upholds the commandment to not commit adultery. To not engage in sexual activity outside of your marriage. But Jesus does not stop there, does he? Jesus goes even further. Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus here says that adultery is not just an issue of the body, it's also one of the heart. You see, in Jesus' day, the interpretation that the scribes and the Pharisees had of the commandments was that you must only adhere to the the outward letter of the law. But Jesus comes and he teaches us, no, there's an inward spirit of the law. That, That what the Pharisees were practicing wasn't true religion in God's eyes. What the Pharisees were practicing was hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you say and act one way, but on the inside you're something else. That's hypocrisy. And the Pharisees and the scribes were the chiefs of this. They they had turned this into a great business where by being the greatest hypocrites, they found a way to enrich themselves on the backs of the poor. And Jesus comes along and he says, this hypocrisy isn't going to fly in my kingdom. It's not going to fly. That in my kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, it's not just about the the outward act, but it's about the inward heart. And so Jesus brings up this issue of lust. Of lust. And what is lust? Let's define it for us quickly this morning. Lust means to set your heart upon to long for, to covet, to desire, to feign for, or to lust after. To to set your heart upon, to set your mind upon, to covet, to desire. To lust means to look upon with passionate desire. And Jesus says that if we are, are looking upon others with passionate desire, with sexual desire, that before God, we have already committed adultery in our hearts. 
You see, God sees the heart. We see the action. I don't know your thoughts unless you speak them. I don't know what's in your heart. You can fool me. You can fool others. But you can't fool God. God sees the heart. God knows your thoughts. And Jesus says that if we have lust in our heart, we have committed adultery in our heart. Not only does God see the heart, not only does God know your thoughts, He, hear hear this, He judges them. He judges them. It's not that He just sees them and says, well, you know, I know they're they're only human. I'll grade them on a curve. No, God, God judges the thoughts and the intent of the heart, the Bible says. And and what does God judge our thoughts and our hearts against? But his perfect holiness. His perfect righteousness. His perfect standard of justice. And I hope that you can feel the weight of this commandment. I hope that you can feel the weight of what might seem like an impossible standard. Because this is the purpose of God's law. To show us God's holiness and to show us our sinfulness. If you squirm at the fact that God knows your thoughts and judges you for them, that's good. That's the point. That's what Jesus is driving at. To show us our sinful condition. Because hear me in this, there's not a person in here who hasn't looked with lustful intent at somebody else. And before God, we are all sinners. In and of ourselves, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But this also shows us the holiness of God. His holiness, his transcendence, his otherness, his high and exaltedness. He is so far above us. And this shows us the the miracle of Christ. Who the Bible says was tempted in every point as we are. Yet without sin. So that Jesus, though he walked this earth and he, with his eyes, saw the things that we see, never once looked with lustful intent, never once transgressed God's law, so that he could be our perfect, spotless lamb. That his perfect obedience was done for us. On our behalf. 
Because he came to seek and to save us, to rescue us, and to lay his life down as the propitiation for our sin. Tim Keller, who passed away just a few weeks ago, had this wonderful quote. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That is the gospel. You're, you're way more sinful than you could ever imagine. That's the good news. That's the good news, the gospel. But God loves you in Christ more than you could even know. And so what this does for us is this presses us to our only hope, which is Christ. Our only hope, which is the cross. We have no other hope. If, if you thought you were, were pretty good because you hadn't broken the Ten Commandments and committed adultery, here comes Jesus who says, you ever looked at a woman lustfully? Guess what? You're guilty in God's eyes. It pushes us to the cross. It rids us of our own self-righteousness, which the Bible says is as filthy rags. It's at this point that Jesus moves on to some points of application. And so in closing today, I just want to highlight these for us. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I believe that Jesus here is uh, talking uh, hyperbolically. He's using hyperbole. He's not um, trying to... uh, Tell us that if we have lust in our heart that, uh, or if we sin that we go around chopping off our members because the, the, truly the problem is inside in our hearts that if that were the case, everybody would in here would be blind and have no hands. <laughs> At some point you get to the point where you, we didn't, nobody had any hands left to cut anybody else's hands off. I mean, it'd just be a real mess and you wouldn't have eyes to see it. It'd just be chaos. It's... it's it's hyperbole. He's using extreme language to, 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 to shake us. To shake us. But what he is saying is that you must remove from your life things that are causing you to sin. Remove from your life things that cause you to sin with your eyes and with your actions. With your eyes, the things that you see, are there, are there things that you are watching that are causing you and stirring up lust within your heart? Cut it out. Cut it out. It's at this point that I will mention pornography. If, if it's not obvious by now, p- pornography is only lust. There's no way to view pornography without lusting. 
if you think that that's what you're doing, you, you, I don't even know where to start with you. Okay? Pornography is only lust. There's no place for pornography in the kingdom of God. For the Christian man or Christian woman. And you can have victory over pornography. That, that there, you don't have to walk in bondage to pornography. I'm living proof of that. And I'm not saying that to boast in myself, but only to boast in the freedom that Christ can give and that Christ brings. So the devil is a liar. He wants to keep you bound in lies. He wants to keep you bound in sin by lies. So the devil will lie to you on two fronts. He'll tell you nobody else is dealing with this. That's a lie. He'll also tell you that you could never have freedom over this. That's also a lie. The book of 1 John says that we must walk in the light. That means to expose our sin, to pray and to ask for healing with brothers and sisters in Christ and who can give accountability and who can give spiritual strength and that we can walk in victory. But even beyond pornography... I mean, you cannot hardly watch a television show today that's not just flesh in your face. Now, I understand we live in the world. I understand we have to go to work. I understand we got to go shopping. I understand all of those things. I understand you got to drive down 410 and, and look at the plastic surgery billboards. I understand all of that. But we don't have to actively present ourselves to it. We, we don't have to actively open it up and watch it. So I believe God can give us the grace to, to take every thought captive when we live in the world. I believe he can give us the grace as we go to La Cantera Mall and all of a sudden half the women don't wear bras anymore in San Antonio for some reason. That God can help us capture every thought. That doesn't mean that I go foolishly exposing my mind to things that will stir up lustful thoughts within me. Jesus says, cut that stuff out. It also means, he says, your right hand, that's your actions. Are there things that you're doing? Are there places that you're going where you're tempted to lust? Stop going to those places. Again, we, we're not to go out of the world. We're, we're salt and we're light. But we need to, while we're in the world, be on guard. Be on guard. I know that when I go out to these places, I am going to be assaulted by flesh. And so I pray, God, guard my heart from lust. Help my eyes. Help me not to see the parade that's in front of me today. Because I have to take every thought captive. And when the stuff makes its way into my visual spectrum, I have a choice. Either I'm going to dwell on that, I'm going to think on that, I'm going to let my imagination go, or I'm going to arrest it with the power of Christ.
and say, I am not thinking about that in Jesus' name. It's crazy out there. I know. But we, as God's people, are called to a higher standard. To walk in holiness before God, in purity before God. And what this requires of us before God is truth and honesty. Truth and honesty, because God knows and God sees. You're not fooling Him. It's about your inner life. It's about your inner man. Is your heart towards God? Is your heart towards God? Again, we fall short. I fall short in so many ways. I hope that I'm not putting out there some sort of false idea that I'm some sort of standard and I have all of this figured out. The issue is, is your heart towards God? And do you love Christ more than you love sin? That's the issue. There's nobody like Jesus. Is your heart stirred for Christ? Nothing will deaden your love for Christ like pornography. Let me just speak on that just for one more minute. You come into worship, you're riddled with guilt. So you can't, you can't even praise God because the enemy is throwing your sin in your face. So then you start kind of just looking around. Well, I don't really like the song they're singing anyway and I'm not really feeling it anyway. Well, of course you're not feeling it because your heart has been deadened by sin. If you will, by the power of the Spirit, put to death that sin in your life, the world will become a vibrant place to you. You say, I can't, I'm in bondage. Has Christ not set you free? Do you have more faith in the lies of the enemy than in the word of God? I can't, I'm, I'm addicted, there's nothing I can do. Listen to me. I heard this illustration before. I want to share it with you. You, you feel so overwhelmed, so overcome, so, so bound by temptation. I, I have to give in. There's nothing that I can do to stop it. If in that moment, in that place of intense temptation, someone walked in with one of your loved ones and put a gun to their head and said, if you look at pornography, I'm blowing their brains out. Let me tell you something. You would have self-control in that moment. So don't talk to me about self-control. It's about your desires that go unchecked. It's about your heart. In that moment, you would have all the self-control in the world. In that moment, your temptation would flee. It's about what you believe. Stop believing the lies of the enemy. Saturate your mind in the truth of the word of God. Put your Bible by your keyboard at work or at 
home or put your Bible, put a Bible everywhere that you're tempted to look at pornography and open it and call a brother, call a sister, call on someone who can fight with you. Your family is what's at stake. Your legacy is what's at stake. Your grandkids and grandkids, grandkids is what's at stake. This is a soul-destroying, marriage-destroying, family-destroying sin. And Jesus tells us that the stakes are high when he says it's better to cut some things out than go to hell. To, to be so deadened in your heart towards God that you don't even feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that you don't even feel the displeasure of God, that you are so numb to His truth and to His Word and the fact that He says on the last day we will be judged. To be so deadened in that place is to be spiritually dead and on the pathway to hell. That's the words of Christ. And He speaks them in that way to wake us up so that those who are being led to the slaughter can understand the path that they're on. So your heart is the issue. In your heart, do you love Christ? In your heart, do you love His Word? In your heart, do you desire to please Him and to serve Him and to glorify Him? If it is, you can overcome any temptation... But if your heart is only to please and to gratify yourself, you will give in time and time again. And the truth is that you and God are the only ones who know. Some of you here today may be on the pathway of destroying your marriage and family and even losing your own soul. And I want to warn you, wake up. Wake up. The path of lust is the path to hell and death. Well, God will forgive me. He'll forgive me if I ask for forgiveness. You know what Jesus says? Don't put God to the test. The Apostle Paul says, do not presume upon the grace of God. Listen, if your heart is so deadened that you can utter those words, God will forgive me. What makes you think that you will even want to ask for forgiveness? Or that God would grant you repentance? Do not presume upon the grace of God. If you can hear my words today, flee from lust and pursue righteousness, pursue holiness, pursue godliness, and cling to the cross of Christ. Listen. We've all fallen short. We, we all battle. We, we all are engaged in this. There, there's not a person in here that this does not touch. And the truth is that if it was up to us in our own righteousness, we would all be hopelessly lost. But because of the work of Christ and those who truly tr cling to his cross in faith receive grace. Do you love Christ? is your heart towards him and the work that he has done. Because there's forgiveness here. There's forgiveness at the, the cross of Christ. 
If you have been falling short, if you have committed these sins, there is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. But to come to the cross, you must repent. To come to the cross, you you must do a 180. You, You must come in the opposite direction than the one you've been heading. To come to the cross, you you must change the way you think about sin. You must have a change of mind. You must have a change of heart. The the cross is not for those who love sin. The cross is for those who love Jesus. And those who love Jesus hate sin. Because it's sin that put Jesus on the cross. And so I invite us this morning... To come to the cross today. To come and to take of the Lord's table. And invite our worship team to come. Our ushers to come and prepare. I know that this is a heavy word. If it was up to me. When I woke up this morning. I would not pick this text. This is a word that we all need to hear. Because it shows us God's holiness and it shows us our need for the saving grace of Christ. And so I implore you today, look to faith in Christ. Look to faith in his work of salvation, his work of healing, his forgiveness of sin his work of freedom in your life. As we prepare to take communion, communion is for the believer. It's for those who have professed faith in Christ. It's not for the perfect. Otherwise, nobody would come up here. Communion is a time for us to examine our hearts, to allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to have its work in our lives, for us to repent of sin, For us to look to Christ. For us to walk in in renewed covenant faithfulness with our Lord and Savior. So I invite you to come this morning. And as you do, let's reflect on the words of Jesus today. And let's do business with God. Amen. Father, we thank you again for the cross. Lord, without your cross, without your shed blood without you taking our place and our penalty that we rightfully have earned and all deserve, we would be hopelessly lost. But Lord, you lived a life of perfect obedience and the power of the Holy Spirit and laid down your life for us to pay the price for our sin. It's because of your wonderful work, your glorious work, that we can come to the table this morning. Lord, we come in faith, believing and trusting in your work to cleanse us of our sin this morning. We thank you for your work of redemption. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.